Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We hope you enjoyed our special President's Day edition of the podcast yesterday. Got a lot of interesting comments back. Uh, a lot of folks thinking that there were other underappreciated uh, presidents that uh, perhaps deserve to mention. And Jim, all I can say is that President's Day happens each year. So hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, talk about some of these folks uh, in future years, if not sooner. Yeah, look, ladies, gentlemen. Keep the spirit of President's Day with you all through the year. <laughs> Remember, it's just 364 more shopping days till the next President's Day. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, uh, let's talk about our good, bad, and crazy martinis today, although we should also tell you that we are brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. Right now, you can schedule your free product tour and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, all of that found at NetSuite dot com slash martini. We'll be talking a whole lot more about that in just a moment. Jim, let's uh, talk about our good martini. If there's anything that has not provided much good news this year, it's the Virginia legislature. Uh, they have a fairly limited window to get stuff done, and the Democrats in control sadly have made the most of that time. We're now past the so-called crossover period, so if a piece of legislation hasn't passed at least one chamber of the legislature, it's dead for the year. The bad news is they've passed a lot of horrible stuff from uh, guns to abortion to you name it. Um, Electoral College uh, now goes to the uh, winner of the national popular vote, if it all gets uh, gets done the way they want it to this year. But on the gun front, there's one piece of good news, and it happened yesterday. This is NPR. Virginia's Democratic governor seemed poised to make broad changes to his state's gun control laws but was dealt a stinging blow by his own party Monday when a state Senate committee blocked a bill that would have, among other things, banned sales of assault weapons. Four Democrats, four Democrats actually, on Virginia's Senate Judiciary Committee broke ranks with their party, handing the Republican minority a victory in tabling the bill for the remainder of the year. It also sent the measure to the state's Crime Commission for further review. The bill would have banned the sale or transfer of certain assault-style weapons in Virginia, It uh, also would have made it illegal to possess silencers and magazines holding more than 12 rounds. Ralph Northam, of course, vowing next year's the year. We're going to get this done and so forth. So, Jim, I got to say I'm kind of surprised that this didn't happen. But obviously, as uh, folks who love the Second Amendment, uh, it's, it's a huge win and a huge sigh of relief right now. Greg, you and I started doing this show in 2009, right? 10, 2010. 2010. Okay, so I want to go back in time. And find you and I from 2008 or so, 2009, and tell us that we will be celebrating the decisions <laughs> of Cree Deeds, who was running for governor as the Virginia nominee last <laughs> that year, and a man named John Edwards, who's not the infamous former presidential candidate, John Edwards. But if you'd said to us, guys, you're going to be really pleased about these guys' votes on a gun issue, and in fact, that would tank a really key objective of the Democrats in the state legislature, we would be stunned. And then you'd tell us Trump is president and we'd say, you're lying. There's no way that could be how, that could be what's going on in the year 2020. Um, yeah, so there's some, an interesting lesson here because look, we were deeply, look, you know, folks in, in Virginia gun owners, Virginia Second Amendment community, the NRA, they were all genuinely worried that the Virginia controlled state legislature, very narrowly controlled, but you know, now a Democratic majority, both the state House of Delegates and the, the state Senate, 
we're going to pass gun control bills this year. Greg, if I'm correct, I don't believe any of them have passed. Some have gotten through the Senate, some have gotten through the House, but not all of them have hit one roadblock or another. And what the answer is, is that a narrow Democratic majority does not quite translate into a narrow pro-gun control majority, at least for this legislation. And so far, it looks like they are a little bit short. And the answer is, is that Cree Deeds, who represents uh, a county that is just extremely rural, I think that, like people joked during his gubernatorial campaign, it was true, it has one stoplight. Uh, John Edwards represents Roanoke in the southwestern part of the state. These are the these guys are Democrats and, and they are pro big spending and, and, you know, oppose the Republicans on a whole bunch of issues. But these guys have not flipped on the gun issue. And I think a lot of Democrats thought, OK, we're going to throw in some provision that says hunting is OK or something like that. But we're going to pass a lot of gun control bills this session. And so far, it has not happened. I don't think if you're a, a, a Virginia gun owner or a Second Amendment advocate that you're you're mostly a sigh of relief. You're not celebrating. Um, although I think it is worth noting, considering the optimism and the momentum and, and the, the degree to which uh, uh, the new Democratic majority. I mean, look, they, in, in these suburban districts like where I am in Fairfax County, they did explicitly run on this. And Eileen Fillercorn, who is the uh, Speaker of the House, basically sent a message saying, hey, we did our part, guys. You guys loused it up and all of you signed on to this as part of our platform back in 2019. You know, I don't think this is the end of the gun control fight in Virginia. I think it is a fairly significant victory for this year. I think it means, you know, that, that basically for another for this session, the, the uh, gun owners don't need to worry. I think it's near certain the Democrats will come back for it. But I also think with that rally that they had in Richmond that everybody predicted was going to be a disaster. And, the, you know, I could have done without them wearing their masks and looking like Hezbollah and stuff like that. But they had that big rally. There was a huge turnout. You got to figure that was a pretty clear signal to some of these lawmakers. Um, it was also, uh, I believe, Chap Peterson, who's actually closer to where I am up near Fairfax County, these D.C. suburbs. Chap Peterson has a bow tie and his first name is Chap. And he's not a Republican, Greg. <laughs> uh, as well as, I believe, one or two others, which is, you know, that's a fairly significant amount. Um, Democrats really thought they had this. And I think this is a uh, reassuring sign for gun owners that there are you know, pro-gun Democrats may be ex- nearly extinct at the federal level. But they're not extinct at the state level, and I think the uh, pro-gun control crowd counted their chickens before they hatched on this bill. Oh, man. One of my neighbors is going to love this because I told him about uh, the legislation that seemed to be coming and seemed to have enough support to pass. He asked, has it been done yet? I said, no, not yet. So the next time I saw him, I was like, oh, I went and got another AR. And uh, so then he saw me a couple weeks later. Have they passed anything yet? No. Uh, he says, oh, OK. Next time I saw him, I got another AR. So wait till I tell him this. This is going to be uh, this is going to be. He's going to say, you're getting a commission from the store, aren't you? <laughs> so uh, but they have passed. I mean, it's not law yet, but it's passed at least one chamber. You got red flag laws and universal background checks. So um, there are going to perhaps be uh, certain gun control provisions uh, that get that get through, but this is a a big bullet dodged at least for the moment, pun intended, I guess. All right, but uh, let's talk about our great sponsor today. That would be Netsuite by Oracle. You know what do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tacovas all have in common? They all use Netsuite to accelerate their growth because successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. So whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools that you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business. 
finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control that you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It is the last system you'll ever need. NetSuite. Business grows here. Schedule your free product tour right now. And when you do, you'll receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get all that at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash martini. netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And in some ways, it's good because the... The baggage is building up pretty quickly here for Michael Bloomberg. Not sure it's keeping up with the billion spent on his ads promoting himself. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there's plenty of grist now for his primary opponents. And if he becomes the nominee somehow uh, for President Trump. So uh, we talked a lot about his stop and frisk comments, his pathetic contention that he really hated stop and frisk, even though he was singing its praises after he left office. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, stop and frisk, not the only issue that Michael Bloomberg either is or will soon be playing defense on. Uh, So we have clips from a couple different times here, one while he was mayor, one after he left office. We'll start with that one. This is 2016, and he's talking about the information economy and how it's different from uh, previous ways uh, that people made a living, which is true. But here's how he talked about the difference between farming and and information work. I could teach anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300, you could learn that. Then, then um, you have 300 years of the industrial society. Uh, you put the piece of metal on the lathe, you turn the crank and the direction of the arrow, and you can have a job. And, and we created a lot of jobs. One point, 98% of the world worked in, uh, in agriculture. Today, it's 2% in the United States. Uh, now comes the information economy. And the information economy is fundamentally different because it's built around replacing people with technology. And the skill sets that you have to learn are how to think and analyze. And that is a whole degree level different you have to have a different skill set. You have to have a lot more gray matter. No, well, only a few different insults in there, Jim. Uh, basically saying farmers aren't smart enough to do this or this is more complicated and you have to be smarter than you would to be a farmer. Uh, we could talk about that in just a moment, but he's not done. Now, back in 2011, he's talking about why health care costs are exploding. And the biggest reason is, is we waste all this money on old people who get sick. All of these costs keep going up. Nobody wants to pay any more money. And at the rate we're going, health care is going to bankrupt us. So not only do we have a problem, it's going to bankrupt us. And we've got to sit here and say which things we're going to do and which things we're not. Nobody wants to do that. You know, if you show up with prostate cancer and you're 95 years old, you should say, go and enjoy, have a nice day, lead a long life. There's no cure, and you can't do it. If you're a young person, we should do something about it. Society's not willing to do that yet. Society is not willing to do that yet. Uh, in other words, to tell old people, go ahead and die, and uh, young people uh, will, will probably treat you. So, uh, Jim, this guy's just piling up the hits here. You know, first of all, I, just, I decided to look this up. 
Uh, prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men, and each year about 175,000 men in the United States get diagnosed with it. Uh, 60% are diagnosed in men over 65. So, I mean, is, is, is the cutoff age is just 95, or, or under the Bloomberg administration, would would under under Bloomberg care, would that get, uh, get gradually get ratcheted down? That, that basically the life, yeah, you know what, you're too, you cost too much to say we're just going to let you go. Good luck with that that cancer there. Um, I, I suppose you could make the argument that look, these are the sorts of decisions that occur when government controls healthcare, and government controls healthcare when government is paying for healthcare. So many of us have been arguing for a long time. You want to get uh, not only as government f- far away from the healthcare decision process as possible, you probably want to get the, this is between the individual and the doctor as much as possible, which is why people need things like medical savings accounts. They need some way to where they can pay for it out of pocket, where they have the resources so that they can go for the treatment courses they need. And they're not going to someone else, whether it's their employer, whether it's their insurance plan, whether it's their, uh, you know, the, the government saying, please, I will die without this. Please decide that I am worth it. Um, I think we can understandably understand that's a um, deeply dehumanizing position to be in. Um, regarding the farming thing, I'm going to make one minute caveat. In, you know, I'm going to, out of respect for my colleague, Robert Rubrugan, who points out that, uh, look, the beginning of this thing, he's talking about the agrarian society that lasted 3,000 years before the industrial era. And yes, you could get anybody to go out and be a farmer because that's what societies did. Uh, basically, you went out and you became a farmer because most people worked in farming in agrarian societies. That's what made them agrarian societies. That having been said, Greg, I'd be a lot more sympathetic if Mike Bloomberg had not insisted that Colorado Springs and Pueblo, like the second and fifth biggest cities in Colorado, do not have paved roads. I've been there. I've, I've been to Colorado Springs. I've, I've been I've been to Pueblo. I used to write for the Pueblo Chieftain. I'm fairly certain they had paved roads there, right? So in the broader context of uh, Mike Bloomberg being a smug and insufferable, uh, thinks he knows it all, condescending jerk, uh, you might give him a little bit more uh, benefit of the doubt. Having said that, I don't think he thinks that well of, of today's modern farmers. And all the other things he has said whenever he loses a referendum on gun issues in, in rural parts of the country, that condescension and disdain for people who live anywhere really south of the Battery in Manhattan, um, that comes out real quick in Bloomberg. It's one of the reasons I'm actually kind of looking forward to tomorrow night's debate. Mike Bloomberg hasn't been in a debate since in at least a decade. And when you're a billionaire, when you're the richest man in New York City, uh, you generally get used to people sucking up to you. You don't get used to people uh, asking you tough questions. I'm hoping that the moderators ask about these sorts of comments. I'm hoping that the other Democratic candidates press Bloomberg on these sorts of comments. I think, besides the fact that he's effectively trying to buy the nomination, that one of the the themes that I think is most effective against Bloomberg, because everyone's like, oh, you know, Democrats just want somebody who can beat Trump. They're there. They don't really care about the issues. They don't care. That, I, I went and I checked, Greg. You know how long he's been a Democrat? 15 <laughs> months. 15 months. <laughs> right? He's been here. And like, oh, it's like, he's, he's just joined. Now, by the way, he left the Republican Party in 2007. Um, I find it extra. I read about this in today's morning Jolt newsletter. It is extraordinarily fascinating that he's running ads everywhere. Every time I go to work out, <clears throat> yes, I work out. Um, I see his ads up on the televisions and they're all about him having this close, personal, you know, warm working relationship with Barack Obama. He didn't have a close working relationship. First of all, he endorsed George W. Bush. He did not endorse Obama in 2008. He was critical of Obamacare. Uh, Bloomberg and, and Obama were not buddy buddy all through the eight years of Obama's presidency. 
but his ads really do make it look like they were. And Greg, I'm finding it fascinating. We haven't heard a peep of objection from the Obama, from former President Obama, from Michelle, from any of their aides or anything like that. Like if any of them want, thought that ad was out of line or, or was creating a false impression or was it implying an endorsement that was not there, they could shut that down with a phone call. They could either call out the Bloomberg campaign and say, take that ad down. Or they could just call the, call up the New York Times and say, you know, this ad really creates a, a false impression of our relationship. Obama hasn't done that, which is, you know, particularly interesting. And I'm sure the Biden campaign finds that interesting and particularly frustrating. But anyway, Bloomberg is coming here. Bloomberg has a thinly veiled contempt for everybody. And it comes through in the soda ban. It comes through in um, the way he talks about gun owner. He, he talks about everybody who isn't him like they're an idiot. And I think most people look at Mike Bloomberg and say, first of all, could you imagine Mike Bloomberg ever having to survive survive on his own in the wild? <laughs> where where's Zabars? Where, where where's the nearest latte bar or something? I need I only want a small one. I don't want a large soda. So anyway, um, Bloomberg is a. Here, I think Bloomberg actually. You know, it's interesting. President Trump can be a thoroughly obnoxious person. President Trump. You know, we just saw after the uh, uh, the, you know, the 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 impeachment acquittal. Trump cannot enjoy good news. He cannot keep himself out of the spotlight. He has to go and do something even further. Um, we saw the firings. He, he, you know, he constantly courts controversy. But then he does something like the victory lap at NASCAR, and people just kind of like that, right? Obama, you know, Trump has this, you know. Also, depending depending on how you feel about who Trump is is poking, you know, sticks at. With Bloomberg, like who hates farmers? Who doesn't like farmers? And well, oh God, those farmers! They said those idiots. I mean, that's not the message is going to help Democrats in twenty twenty, but. Uh, so that's the thing. The question will be either can any of Democrat of Bloomberg's Democratic rivals put a spotlight on this uh, prickly jerkishness of his persona and you know make capitalize on that? And then the next question is if Bloomberg is the nominee, uh, assuming the Bernie Bros do not burn the city of Milwaukee to the ground, um, the next question would be could Trump make an issue of that and give you the sense of like, look, Trump's got all kinds of issues, but Trump doesn't look down on you. Trump is the only president who you will never feel you know inferior to. <laughs> A couple of quick follow-ups here. Uh, I believe there was a New York Magazine story in the last few days. And uh, from what I read, it sounds like Obama is completely staying out of the Democratic primary until they settle on a nominee. And then he envisions himself as the great uh, unifier who can bring all different factions of the party together. But if he puts his thumb on the scale now... Uh, in the context of that story, it's particularly about being opposed to Bernie. Uh, there's going to be uh, a big chunk of the party that that suddenly hates him. So he's staying out until he can uh, be the grand unifier here. In terms of uh, the two Bloomberg statements, number one, you, I know you know farmers. I know farmers. I would love to get answers from them about uh, the contention that all they do is dig a hole, put in a seed, fill in the hole and water it. And that's about it. Thirdly and lastly, it was Obama's healthcare, not his czar, but the architect of his legislation, Ezekiel Emanuel, the brother of Rahm Emanuel, who said on his own, this was not administration policy, that uh, you should only pretty much try to keep yourself alive till age 75. And anything after that is gravy. And if you get really sick, just just let nature take its course. As we said last week, Mike Bloomberg's now 78, Jim. So I'm just curious as to where he thinks the cutoff ought to be. Yeah. Uh, how, about, how old is, is Emanuel? Uh, he's actually younger than he looks. I think he's, uh, early sixties. Wow. Wow. So much for clean living. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> I want to get back to him in about 18 years. Yeah, exactly. Still feel the same way, pal? Yeah. Probably not. All right. Let's, uh, let's look at our crazy martini now, Jim. And this actually happened four days ago, but we are not going to ignore this story. So let's go to USA Today. 
Michael Avenatti, a lawyer who gained fame by representing a porn star in lawsuits against President Donald Trump, was convicted Friday of trying to extort sportswear giant Nike. The verdict was returned Friday by a Manhattan federal jury after it deliberated charges of attempted extortion and honest services fraud in what prosecutors called Avenatti's attempt to extort up to $25 million from Nike with threats to otherwise harm the company. The charges carry a combined potential penalty of 42 years in prison. Of course, he's likely to appeal, so he might not actually be going to prison anytime in the immediate future. But, uh, Jim, anytime news like this happens with Michael Avenatti, uh, and we certainly mentioned this when uh, he was charged with these uh, crimes against Nike, as well as other nefarious events over time, including his ridiculous um promotion of Julie Swetnick, the most unbelievable of all the Kavanaugh accusers, which is saying something, the media still loved Michael Avenatti, including CNN's media guy, Brian Stelter, who said this not that long ago, about a year ago. Looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. Well, looks like Michael Avenatti will be unavailable to run for president (laughs) this year. Jim, what do you make of it all? You know... Every once in a while, you see a, a trend come along that, that seems to come out of nowhere. All of a sudden, it's super hot. It seems like everybody's doing it. You don't get it. You, you don't understand the appeal. You don't understand why everyone's doing this. You know, Greg, I don't, you know, you and I are roughly the same age. I can reliably say that in 1996, I never did the Macarena. I played the fifth. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah. Our, our predecessors in the 70s didn't buy a pet rock. Uh, Tickle Me Elmo, you know, they, no one ever had a Thanksgiving, you know, brawl or something like that. I'm trying to think of other, you know, big, bizarre Tamagotchis. These were the Japanese toys where you had to press the buttons right to keep them alive. All these things where, where it's like, you know, oh my goodness, everybody's into this. And you just see it and you're like, oh no, this is a terrible idea. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not buying that Edsel at all. Uh, the Ford Pinto? No, no, I think those things explode. I'm not doing that. All these you know, these discount vacation plans you're hearing offering to Wuhan in uh, in China. I'm not interested. I'm sorry. You know? Michael Avenatti was one of those, right? Where we're all of it, like even by the the idea that this guy was a president, you know, was even getting a sniff of presidential coverage. First of all, if he had shown up in uh, a, a legal drama, uh, let's say one of the ones on TNT that you know Kamala Harris always seems like she's auditioning for. Um, Avenatti would always play the slimy, insufferable opposition counsel, right? <laughs> the, the, you would not cast him as the hero. You know, he, he just had this entire vibe of him of being uh, hyper-aggressive, like he spent the whole day chugging Red Bulls. Um, my understanding is a bit on the shorter side, so maybe he's a little bit Napoleon complex. And his entire prominence was over representing Stormy Daniels. This appears to be a rather sordid and unpleasant thing that President Trump did and the idea of paying the hush money. President Trump insisted that he'd paid the hush money, but they hadn't done anything, had an extramarital affair. But just, you know, so obviously he had this information or was representing her in this particular Trump scandal. And I got to say, out of all the stuff Trump has done, this is, you know, like it's not good, but I'm not even sure this cracks the top 10 most scandalous things he's ever done. Um, but Avenatti somehow turned that into like, oh, okay, now we're talking to the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. Into like, what, was it 300 uh, cable news appearances in a three-month span or something? It was an ungodly amount of it. And it was, obviously it wasn't Fox News that was doing it. So it was almost entirely CNN and MSNBC just decided to have him on the entire time. Little did we know, by the way, Greg, that one, he was filing uh, uh, various lawsuits and appeals and, and legal efforts 
that were very unlikely to succeed and that any lawyer worth their salt would say, you know, that's probably not going to work. And in fact, if you end up losing and end up having to pay attorney's fees, you'll end up paying Donald Trump, which is in fact what happened. Then we found out that he was he had forged, I believe, Stormy Daniels signature to make sure that the money was supposed to come for her for her book was going to him. Right. So now he's stealing from his clients, or at least according to Stormy Daniels. Uh, and now we have this third thing about Nike, uh, uh, the idea that basically extortion for there. Like everything about this guy was a screaming, you know, flashing neon sign, be careful, right? Um, but there was just this unbelievable desire. Like, like it's kind of fascinating that Democrats responded to the shock and horror of Trump winning the 2016 election by saying, we need one of those two. Which suggests that they're not completely... Uh, shocked and horrified and abhor it and think it is the absolute worst possible. Now it's, it's kind of envious. It's like, ooh, wait a minute. Why did we find that guy? Wait, Trump was a Democrat for much of his life. Why couldn't we have gotten him, right? So there's this inner conflict in the Democrats that Avenatti tapped into perfectly. Um, and I think that there was this weird, like looking back, there, were the, there are certain like, you know, as I, I joke, look, maybe you thought a, a pet rock was a cute joke. All right, funny. There really wasn't any justification for Michael Avenatti being taken seriously. Everyone who ever treated him seriously as a presidential candidate should just go sit in the corner and think about what they've done for a period of time. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we won't be hearing from him again. Um, all kinds of people had interaction with him that indicated this guy was a rageaholic maniac. And um, I, don't know, I, I feel like we've just got enough of those figures in politics, Greg. We've got quite a few of them. So what do we learn today, kids? Ralph Northam and Michael Bloomberg supported George W. Bush as recently as 2004. And as recently as a year ago, people at least at CNN and elsewhere thought Michael Avenatti might make a good presidential nominee. Oh, yeah. oh and, and Creed Deeds and John Edwards are the good guys. <laughs> That's right. Although not that John Edwards. And not the psychic John Edwards either. Although, <laughs> I don't know. The, the jury's still out on him. Well, he would have told the committee not even to bring up the issue because he would have known it wasn't going to actually He would have seen pass. it coming. <laughs> Jim, happy Tuesday. <laughs> See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to schedule your free product tour for NetSuite by Oracle right now and get your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a kind review, and we will see you here again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.